Both sides were filming me because they viewed me as a traitor to their cause, right? They wanted to catch me. And I knew I was on the right side then. I was doing the right thing if I had irritated both sides. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for this throwback program, Forget Washington, Save America. And we're not talking about George Washington, you guys. This program from three years ago is still so relevant today, and it's actually pretty perfect to throw in during our current season, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America. Because, you know, this really comes down to us, you guys. It's us who's going to save America. We can't wait for the people we send to Washington to do that for us. If you're not convinced, you might be by the end of this episode. Here to break it down for us is former U.S. Congressman Jason Altmaier, author of the book Dead Center. Jason Altmaier served three terms in the United States House of Representatives He was a bipartisan centrist known for working with both sides of the aisle. During his time in office, the nonpartisan National Journal calculated Altmaier's voting record to be the exact midpoint of the House, the dead center, giving him the most centrist voting record in Congress. So in this program, Jason shares his insider knowledge on the challenges we face and on solutions that could move us forward. This program was facilitated by Steve Vancor, president of Vancor Jones Communications. And I just have to say, it was really nice to also hear what Steve has to say about all this, because he has many, many years of experience in political consulting, government affairs, and polling and political research. So having these two guys together to share their experiences was really interesting. Plus, they know how to make a serious topic fun. Just wait until you hear this live laughter and applause from people who were sitting right next to each other, breaking bread together. Oh, I can't wait to be back there soon. All right, so let's get on with it. To kind of set the stage for the discussion, first, we're going to hear very briefly from Glenn Burhens of Stearns Weaver Miller Law Firm. They were one of our sponsors of this event, and Glenn shares a quick story about why this topic is so important to them, and then he'll introduce our guests. Here's Glenn Burhens. Thank you to the Village Square for having this great event. 
My partners and I are very proud to be sponsors and supporters of the Village Square and to join the distinguished other sponsors here this evening. And we're excited about this program in particular for two reasons. Number one, to help support the continuing efforts of the Village Square where we can gather, break bread, uh, discuss, and disagree without being disagreeable. And that's something that's a little short these days, and I think we need to bring it back. And it's groups of folks like you in towns like Tallahassee across this country that will ultimately be successful in that effort. The second reason why we're excited about this is because of the topic. Bitter partisanship is dividing our country. That's no secret. It's in the papers every day. It's on television every day. We're bombarded by it. But, you know, more than three years ago, I and some of my law partners got together kind of bemoaning the state of affairs and, and the state of our political discourse, and we decided we wanted to try to do something about it. And we've looked at very different options. Um, and we keep coming back to the same place, which really is going to be the root of the discussion tonight, which is how do we break the lock of the political parties on our system? Now, what we came up with was a proposed constitutional amendment to do away with closed party primaries. I see some people smiling out there. You've heard this pitch before. It's actually not a pitch. I'm just telling you where we became involved. We thought we made some progress with the Constitution Revision Commission this year. Didn't quite get it over the, uh, the goal line, but we'll be back. And maybe some folks here would like to join our effort as we move forward. But the issue is really directed towards breaking that partisan gridlock, breaking the grip. And I can't think of two better people to talk about that tonight. Uh, Steve Vancor, who will be monitored by the Civility Bill. Uh, most of you know Steve. Uh, he's a longtime fixture in state politics. He's a, a noted communications expert, a polling savant. He's not a bad mountain bike rider as well. And um, he's a partner in crime on, on the open primaries uh, effort that we've been working on. Jason Altmaier is a former U.S. congressman served three terms. He was actually identified as the most centrist voting member of Congress. He passed well over 20 bills in his three terms, which is remarkable considering that almost nothing gets done in Congress anymore. Uh, Jason's reward for reaching out to the other side was to get redistricted by the Democratic Party bosses. So that's how we sometimes lose really good public servants trying to do the right thing. Fortunately, he's here to talk to us about tonight's topic. And, you know, Jason opens up his book, Dead Center, with an anecdote. And if you haven't read it, I recommend that you do. Uh, I've got it. I'm in the middle of it. It's a great read. Um, but Jason opens up the uh, book with an interesting anecdote about the aftermath of the Pulse nightclub shooting. And, you know, ordinarily in times of tragedy in America, the party unites. You look back to the, the attacks of 9-11, and that was a good example of that. But shortly after the Pulse shooting, something different happened. The parties retreated to their tribes. They started squaring off and criticizing each other and politicizing a tragedy. And now fast forward to 2018, and you look at the Parkland shooting tragedy. And just today, a commentator, who's no longer on TV but was, lost his job because he tweeted about doing something with a hot poker to one of the teen survivors of Parkland, a young man who's had the audacity to speak up about a pressing issue of the day that affected him personally. And you can see what's happened with the Parkland tragedy. The tribes broke apart really quickly. Some folks weren't even out of the hospital before the partisan knives came out, and that's wrong. 
So I just want to highlight one thing now. Like I do with every book, I immediately go to the last page to find out what happens. And I'm glad to report that in Jason's book, Democracy Didn't Die, but it needs our help. And Steve and Jason are going to talk about that. But I want to leave you because I think, I think Jason really captures what this is all about. And he says, moderation is discouraged and compromise is punished. Nowadays, the only way most members of Congress can keep their seats is to play to the extremes. That has to change. In the end, the burden falls upon us. America gets the Congress that we the people elect. So please welcome and give your attention to Steve Vancor and Jason Altmeyer. And thank you for coming tonight. I never had anyone give away the end of the story before. <laughs> I first met Jason in 1990 on a street corner. It's true. No, no. We weren't prostitutes. We, we were doing something far less respectable. <laughs> we were waving political signs. Uh, some of you may remember the person we were waving political signs for, Pete Peterson. Pete went on to win, became a great member of Congress, the first ambassador to the United States of Vietnam. Jason went up to Washington. I stayed here in the district. And for those of you who were around in 1990, you remember Hillary Care. And the amazing thing about Hillary Care was the first time in a long time our nation decided to wrestle with the issue of complex health care issues. Well, Jason, when he went to D.C., was the health care analyst for Congressman Peterson. And so I came to rely on him regularly because I was asked to speak on behalf of the congressman, travel the district and the state, talking about things I knew very little about. Jason always educated me. But what I found amazing about Jason was his intellect and his desire not to give me the talking points that the Democratic Party was handing out, but to give me the points about what was best for America, what we could do to solve these problems, real questions, real answers. And I always appreciated that. So we found out we went our separate ways in our careers, and a little over a decade later, I found out that Jason had the audacity to run for Congress from Pennsylvania. <laughs> a bunch of us chipped in a little bit of money, sent it up to him because he was going to lose. We knew he was going to lose. He defied us, and he ended up winning the seat. It's true. He, he donated because he felt bad for me. It was a sympathy. <laughs> it was a sympathy donation. So, so then I... I didn't think anything of it. And then one day I'm watching late night TV. And, and if you didn't know, at the time, Rahm Emanuel was the great enforcer of the DCCC. And he sent out an edict to all freshman Democrats that there was one thing they were not allowed to do. I'm going to show you that one thing they were not allowed to do now. And who has the old world spirit to represent the fourth? Evidently, it's Congressman Jason Altmaier. I sat down with the freshman Democratic representative in his Washington office. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Tell me about the fighting force. It's a great district. We start in the Allegheny Valley where I grew up, some of the old steel towns along the Allegheny, then over to the Ohio River. We go up into the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh and all the way over to the Ohio line. Okay, great. You played football for Florida State. Right. You were Seminole. I was. Give me the chop. Oh! Oh! oh. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about, about democracy, about what's wrong with our nation, how we got here, where we're going, but let's get to the heart of the matter. What was it like to interview Stephen Colbert? <laughs> <laughs> well, he puts a camera on you the whole time and a camera on him the whole time, and he, it's an hour and a half interview for what turns out to be five minutes, and he does 
crazy things to get reactions. He, he wants to provoke your facial expressions. So at, after about an hour of this, his staff hands him a bunch of questions because their job is to figure out what would have been a good question to which that would have been a funny reaction. <laughs> so in the end, he, he said the, the, the camera comes really close to him. You know, it's that angle. And he says, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions over again. We're just getting the framing right. Don't worry. You don't have to answer. Just sit there. And he starts, he proceeds to ask several questions that I had never heard before. We didn't, they didn't go over them in the interview. And I said, are you sure you don't want me to answer this? And he said, don't worry. You already did. <laughs> so they put it together and he was nice to me. But what Steve was talking about was several members of Congress had really bad experiences with Stephen Colbert. The one that aired directly the week before my show was a congressman from Georgia, a very religious member who introduced a bill that the Ten Commandments should be displayed at the U.S. Capitol. And he was asked about that on the Colbert interview, and he said, well, absolutely, because the Christianity founding, everyone should know the Ten Commandments. And Colbert said, really? You think everyone should know all Ten Commandments? He said, absolutely, yes. Colbert said, okay, name We know where this is going. (laughs) So he got three, the three big ones that you could probably name off the top of your head, and then he couldn't get any more, and he's, well, I was kind of embarrassed, and uh, he didn't, it didn't turn out very well. So after that happened, they said, no one else is allowed to go on the show. But I did it anyway, and it came out okay, so it was fun. One of the things that you were known for as a member of Congress, the National Journal, which we'll talk about a little bit, regularly ranks members of Congress based on their partisanship. They give everybody a partisanship score. There were 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives, and you regularly came up... 218. Right in the middle. Which means sometimes you voted with the Democrats, sometimes you voted... Give me one example when you broke away from the Democratic Party and what the repercussions were. Well, the biggest one was on the ACA. I voted against the Affordable Care Act. I have a health care background. I worked in the hospital industry before. I was in Congress. I, when I left Congress, I worked for Florida Blue over in Jacksonville, I have a master's in health administration. So I know a lot about that issue. You talked, we, I'd been on President Clinton's task force on health care reform. And on every vote, you strike a balance between three things. You think about what's your own personal view. You do the best you can to learn and come to a conclusion. Where's the district? How do my constituents feel? And on that issue, it was very clear my constituents were against the bill. And then what's the impact of what you're voting on on the people that you represent? Because sometimes that's different than what their opinion is. How does it impact the district? The district I represented, Western Pennsylvania, had 146 towns along the Ohio-West Virginia border stretching across the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh. I had sort of that blue-collar, gritty, rust belt area that you might think of when you think of Western PA. So I had people on Medicaid. I had the wealthy suburbs of Pittsburgh, the affluent communities where people were employed and they had health insurance through their employer. And I had the fourth most Medicare beneficiaries of any district in the country, a lot of seniors that had Medicare. I didn't have a lot of uninsured. And the bill cut Medicare by $150 billion. So basically, it was taking money from my constituents to give it to somebody else's constituents, which is pretty hard to explain when you go back home, especially when public opinion is so far against it. So I, in a very high-profile series of weeks where I was a national focus because of my background and because it appeared I was one of the swing votes, I ended up voting no. And the repercussions were Speaker Pelosi did not speak to me for three years. 
after that. And, you know, we, Some would consider that a blessing. That's just <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I was worried that my key wasn't going to work to my office after that. But yeah, things things change. Uh, you, you're you're not given the, the rewards of, of you know some of the things that you're able to do, and you have to definitely work a lot harder to to get attention. But in the end, it was the right vote for my district. I, I don't regret it. But the president was much more willing to accept it and move on to the next issue because in politics, that's what you have to do. We're, we might be enemies today, but I'm going to need you tomorrow. So let's let's make up. Um, Speaker Pelosi had a different view of that. That was a really important vote for her. And it, uh, you know, it definitely changed the relationship. So what, what is the inside look at when, when you're on the outs with leadership? What does that mean for a member of Congress? Because most of us would say, well, fine, but you still get to vote. But the, most of the process is, is in the hallways and other people's so offices. So you serve on committees. You know, there, there's so many examples. Well, one of them is there's a congressman, former congressman named Jason Chavitz, if you remember him, a, a pretty far right of center member. And we were asked to go to China and Korea and do port inspection tours for Homeland Security at Shanghai and at Busan and look at those, those sites. And Speaker Pelosi denied my request to, to go. So I wasn't able, which means Chavitz couldn't go either because you have to be bipartisan. So I went to Boehner. I went to John Boehner and said, hey, will you sponsor? He said, yeah, you can go. Go ahead. Sure. So John so, Boehner was the one who sponsored you. Yeah, which just in the end makes her even more angry, right? Because <laughs> now, now I've gone over her head. So, But we get along fine now. We're still friends. But there's definitely a difference. When you, I voted on substantive issues, on big issues, meaningful stuff about half the time with the Republicans and half the time with the Democrats. And that is what I think most people would want you to do, especially in the type of district that I had, which was basically a 50-50 district. The problem with that is in the primary, which I found out later, they point to you and say, that guy's not a real Democrat. He actually votes half the time. Well, you went through a reapportionment cycle, right? Yeah. And explain how that happened and what they did purposely to you and how the Democratic Party came in. Because Glenn referenced the fact that the party bosses drew you out. After the 2010 census, I was in my third term in 2011. They redrew the seats. Pennsylvania lost a seat because of population decline. Went from 19 seats to 18 seats. And the seat that was eliminated was mine. That was done by the Republican legislature because I was viewed as a young up-and-comer at that point. So my seat's eliminated, and I had to run in a neighboring district that was merged against a sitting Democratic member of Congress, a friend of mine who I had campaigned for. We represented neighboring districts, and two Democrats running against each other for one seat. And so the problem with that is what I said, the people who show up in primaries are the people on the far extreme. So to them, the fact that I was willing to cross the aisle and compromise and, and get along and get things done was not a benefit. That was a weakness. Right, right. Your book moves into that problem. So tell us a little bit. I want to hear just a little story about your campaign because you tell some really good stories in there because then I want to bring this up to a little higher how this is a problem nationally. Well, one of my favorite stories, which Glenn made me think about, was I had been elected and I had about four months under my belt. So I'm still relatively new and I'm in a part of the district. My district was geographically split. So I had an area that was predominantly Democrat, an area that was predominantly Republican. They both, both trended towards the center. But I had an area in the middle that was kind of a mix. And I was in that area, and I'm holding one of these Congress on your corner, which is you invite everybody in the area. You stand on the corner of the supermarket steps, and 
In this case, about 24, 25 people showed up to ask questions of their congressman. So I was used to there being a camera everywhere you go. I happen to be a Democrat, but both sides do it. So the Republican operatives had been following me around with a camera since my campaign, since I was first running. And I was used to it. So as soon as I show up, the camera goes up and they want to catch you off guard and make it a YouTube moment or something they can tweet out. And then as I start to speak, a second camera goes up. You know, and it's 25 people, so they're relatively close. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So now there's two of them. And then I could tell by the reactions to different things that I was saying that actually one was a Republican, but one was a Democrat. <laughs> and both sides were filming me because they viewed me as a traitor to their cause, right? They wanted to catch me. And I knew I was on the right side then. I was doing the right thing if I had irritated both sides. But the funny part was the, the first person who asked a question was somebody, an older gentleman, very nice friend, nice guy. But he was scolding me for these votes that I had made against the Democratic agenda. And he started to lash into me or, you know, and, and he said something to the effect of, uh, you're acting just like a Republican. I can't tell if you're a Republican or a Democrat. And when he said that, a woman standing very near him shrieked and said, what? Everybody knows he's just a lapdog for Nancy Pelosi. And they turned towards each other and started to yell at each other <laughs> in a group of 25 people. And I just stood back and crossed my arms and thought, well, this is what we're dealing with. And that was kind of my awakening to the, what the political experience was going to be. We, we had a wonderful dinner last night. Sandy Safley hosted us where we, we did what we call the Jefferson Dinner. And anybody's interested at all in doing this at your home, grab me later because it was, it was very informative, very enlightening. The goal was to not argue. The goal was to have one common conversation and find common ground. And we did. It was very diverse, a lot of diverse opinions. We all agreed on one thing about what you're getting to, which is I think we all understand what the problem is. And, and let me state it in some statistics. I've been working with Glenn's firm, Stearns Weaver, on this, and, and I want to share this with you. In 1980, now there's two, there's two groups I want to, I want to share. One is the, the National Journal, which scores the members of Congress, the ones that scored you in the center. And the other one is Pew Research. National Journal at the time in 1980 said 80% of the members of Congress were scored as bipartisan. Ronald Reagan's first term, 80% of the members crossed party lines to vote with the other party. At the time, Pew, if you go back and look at Pew Research, they scored, because we always say, well, it's the American people are more divided than ever. 80% of Americans, Congress 80%, 80% of Americans are bipartisan. Today, Pew Research same scale, same set of questions. 80% of Americans are bipartisan. We still believe hard work, fair play. We don't like taxes, but we pay them. We believe in giving somebody a, a hand up when they need it, et cetera, right? We still hold those same values. You can look at things like abortion, uh, death penalty. Marijuana is the exception there, but 80% of Americans then, 80% of Americans now. 80% of Congress then, 2.5%, only 11 members of Congress today are considered bipartisan. That's the problem, right? How do we get here? <laughs> I got the easy part. How do we get here, Jason? Yeah, well, I get asked all the time, why is there so much partisanship in Washington? Because it is disproportionate to America. It's a misconception that the nation is so divided and most people are part of it. That's not the case. Most people wake up every day thinking about something other than politics. 
How's the spring game going to go this Saturday? What's my work schedule look like? What's my kids' activity tonight? That's what people are thinking about. But the people who do wake up every day thinking about politics, living and breathing it, I've seen it personally, and the data shows that if you research it, they have an unhealthy obsession with it. And they're not the nicest people. Or they do it for a living like the white shirts over there. Right. Well, right. But they're on the, they're on the extreme. And the people who are on the extreme, the Pew Research Center has shown this, are the people who donate to campaigns, who put up yard signs, who knock on doors, and most importantly, they show up to vote in primaries. So if you're a candidate running for office in a closed primary where only the extremes or mostly the extremes are are the voters, what are you going to do? You're going to appeal to them in your rhetoric, in your actions, in your behavior, and in the way you vote in the legislature or in the Congress. So that's the, the system we have. The reason we have so much partisanship in Washington is because we elect partisans. It's that simple. We elect people who are accountable to the far extreme, even though they don't make up the majority of America. It's disproportionate. Most folks are normal folks who just want a functioning government. They're okay with Congress working together and getting things done. But the people who dominate the political process and the electoral process are on the fringe, and they don't like compromise. Compromise is a dirty word. You talked last night about, you gave me some information that I hadn't really thought about before. So the process deselects those who work across the aisle. One, the most notable example was Eric Cantor. Eric Cantor, for those of you who remember, was the House of Representatives Minority Leader, and he, he outspent his opponent 27 to 1, and the campaign, which I've studied, had two issues. These were the radical issues that he got thrown out of Congress for. One, yes, I will negotiate and talk with the President of the United States. <sighs> Gasp now. Secondly, I think it was a mistake for us to shut down the government. Imagine those of you who run a business or, or run an enterprise of any sort, and you said to your board of directors, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to make sure this business doesn't run for the next couple of months. If you said, you know, I kind of regret that. Those were the two issues that got Eric Cantor thrown out of office. Why? Because when he went back to his district in Virginia, it was a closed partisan primary. Less than 7% of the electorate voted, voted against him. And we have a system that legally prevents people from voting. I, I see Doobie and, and Sally Osley over here and uh, Shane over here. Lorraine Osley, I consider her a dear friend. I love her. She's a great representative. She really is. But if you live in her district and you're an independent, or a Republican, you're all but legally barred from voting for your next representative in that district because it's a heavily Democratic district. Don't tell Jim Messer that, but it's almost impossible. And Ramon Alexander is doing a great job as our House member, but the, but the independents and Republicans who live in his district are legally prevented from casting a meaningful ballot in that race. And when you look at the entire House of Representatives of the state of Florida, we have 120 seats. 110 meet that criteria that the race, the general electorate will never get a chance to, to, to vote for their next representative. At the federal level, in Congress, there's 435 seats. Of those 435, 78 of them are competitive seats. They're a D plus 10 to R plus 10 and everything in between. And plus 10 is getting to be questionably competitive. 78 out of 435. So if you have a district like mine, that was a toss-up district, and you hear both sides, you have the benefit of hearing different points of view, that's a good thing. You go back to Washington, you've heard two sides to the story. Most people in Congress, 
represent solidly Republican or solidly Democratic districts. So when they have a town hall meeting, all they hear is right on, keep doing what you're doing and don't you dare compromise. So then they go to Washington and they see people who represent other districts who have a different point of view on those issues. And they think to themselves and even say, that guy's crazy. I don't know anybody who thinks like that. I travel around my district. I've never seen someone that has that opinion. And it used to frustrate me in the Democratic caucus because overwhelmingly the Democratic caucus is people who have solidly Democratic districts. No challenge. Very few centrists left. So we would stand up as centrists and voice a concern about legislation that was pending and a long line of these people representing safe seats would get up and criticize us for not being real Democrats. We don't have a backbone. Can't you take a stand? And they would quote these national polls about how popular their opinion was, forgetting the fact that we represent individual districts. So it's a big problem when you represent a solidly partisan district, you're not having the benefit of hearing other points of view. And it's like this sorting that occurs that Bill Bishop talks about in the yeah. big sort, which I source in my book, that people have surrounded themselves in like-minded enclaves where they only see and hear people who think like they do. And that's really harmful for the republic. The point is, to me, that not only are voters deselected, they're prohibited legally from voting, then the process deselects them as well. You made a really good point last night that we're, we're, we're supposedly, who knows, we're going to have a wave election this year, right? A very strong, every indicator is this is going to be a very pro-blue wave Democratic year. Well, guess who gets tossed out of office in blue wave Democratic years? It's the centrists because they're in competitive seats that they have to talk to a broader swath of voters. The people in the same seats and the very Republican seats and the very Democratic seats don't get tossed out. It's the political middle gets tossed out. Here's what I try to do in the book, right, to address all of these issues. And I think what is unique is I was always sort of a political science geek, right? So, and I think you are too, right? So we, we've read these, you know, books that outline the problems and talk about the social science research. And I have a lot in the book about social science research into the way partisans think, how people react in group dynamics. Will they accept information that conclusively proves their point of view is wrong? They're just factually inaccurate. If you present them with that, does anyone want to take a guess if they accept that? No, they do not. How they react, you know, you do brain scans on people and put them under MRIs and show them political information and what parts of the brain light up. Really cool stuff like that. I, I just, I'm, in, I'm into that stuff. Then you talk about the systemic problems that lead to polarization. Gerrymandering, money in politics, the partisan media, social media, the closed primary system, all of these things that are huge problems. But what's different is I weave throughout anecdotes from my career as a centrist, having been there, of what's the real world impact on the elected official? Because you work in Washington and you have to deal with that world, but you also represent a district and you have to go home in this very polarized environment and explain what you're doing. How does it impact the decisions that you make? So the last chapter are solutions. And interestingly, when you go through the process of researching a book like this, it has a way of changing your opinion on things. I told you I lost my seat largely due to gerrymandering. So I went into this thinking gerrymandering is a huge problem, right? right. I mean, because I'd seen Otherwise. it. Otherwise. Yeah, but it turns out it's really just a symptom. Gerrymandering is not the cause of the problem. And 
people who are replaced in office are generally replaced by people from the extreme. But the folks who are affected by gerrymandering and the seats that have changed hands because of it is only at most a couple dozen. It, you know, it hasn't changed the whole country. There are, there are larger issues. So when you go through it, term limits is another one. I, I found out through this research that term limits don't work. They actually make the problem worse. When you have term limits, uh, it's been found in the states that have implemented term limits. We are in one of them. It's prohibited at the federal level. It's not constitutional. They're less innovative. They get less done. The people who come in immediately position themselves for political gain, either by deciding what industry they want to work for afterwards. They connect with the sugar industry or the healthcare industry, whatever it might be, and cast votes that way. Or they want a position to run for higher office. They go for quick hits. They want a success now, the future be damned. It doesn't matter if 10 years from now, the vote I just cast is going to cause a budgetary problem because I want to look good now. And most importantly, it empowers the people who aren't term limited, which are lobbyists and career staff. And well, I, I don't think, no offense. I, yeah, go ahead. In that, no offense to the lobbyists and the right, staff yeah. in the room, right? If term limits was, was so bad, I mean, Congress doesn't have term limits, and Congress kind of sucks. Yeah, we talked about that last night. It does, yeah. Well, also, Congress has had tremendous turnover in the last six, seven, eight years. This year, a record number of turnover just in this session. But in just the last 10 years, the, the amount of turnover in Congress is a record level. So they don't have term limits, but they've replaced the people who leave. And the problem is what we talked about. This is the biggest issue with term limits. You're going to replace somebody with another person who's accountable to those same extremes that right. the first person right. was. So when you leave office, you put a different face in there but they still have to win election by appealing to those same extremes, and it actually makes the problem worse. Okay, good point. Liz, did you have a question? Go ahead. Yeah. So one question is, explain the difference between open primary and nonpartisan primary. Everyone votes for all candidates, and the top two run in the election. What's the difference between the two? It's ironic that Steve and I reconnected over this issue, because in my book, it turns out through research, and I didn't know much about the top two primary when I started writing it, it really is the biggest and most effective solution to the problem, and certainly the most politically explain, realistic. Explain I will, I will, but I'm just saying I, I agree, and it's not because I happen to be here with Steve. It's because I came to this conclusion through research. Anyway, a top two open primary means everybody who's running for an office, Republicans, Democrats, Greens, Liberals, Libertarians, Reform Party, everybody is on the same ballot. You're all together. And every registered voter, every party affiliation is eligible to vote in that primary. And the top two go on to the general election. California, Louisiana, and the state of Washington have this type of system. And here's what that does. If you are someone who runs in that primary and you only appeal to your narrow extreme within the base of your party, you are going to lose. In order to win that primary... You have to appeal not just to your own people, but to people in the center and even members of the other party. That's the only way you're going to survive. It totally changes the way not just you campaign for that seat, but the way you legislate and the way you carry yourself and the way you vote and the way you talk. And it's made a huge difference in California. People who couldn't make that adjustment have lost. They went 10 years without an incumbent being defeated either at the federal or state level 
Now they've had multiple members that both lose. And the people who do make the adjustment, they adjust by working together, by getting things done in a way that hasn't happened in Sacramento or in D.C. before. So if you just there's a lot of recommendations that we make. But if you just make that one change, it totally changes the type of people we're sending to Washington. And that's well, what and we it makes need. the people who are there, it frees them up to not only worry about protecting their left flank or protecting their right flank. Prime example is a guy named Daryl Issa, I-S-S-A, if you've seen him, incredibly partisan, very controversial guy, was chair of the oversight committee that went after the Benghazi stuff, a really partisan guy, regardless of your politics. Then the California did this change, and guess what? All of a sudden, he became a moderate. He voted against the Republican tax bill, for example, most recently. He won by a recount in 2016. He realized he probably couldn't win his own district next time because of the changing dynamics. So he's retiring from the Congress. But for the time he was there, totally changed his voting and his behavior because he had to appeal now to everybody, not just to the Republicans. Well, the the interesting thing about how California got there was Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh, governor of the state. And California literally, not figuratively, literally could not keep their lights on. Remember the rolling blackouts? Okay, they didn't, they didn't have the ability to pass legislation to keep the lights on. Schwarzenegger was frustrated, grabbed a bunch of members of Congress, they put it on the ballot, it passed. And then four years later, California having a drought passes the largest water bill in the nation's history. And who was on the DS? with the governor, the next governor, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, Democrats and Republicans working together across the aisle to solve big problems. And what was interesting about this, if you think this is a partisan solution, if you're a hardcore Democrat and you think, oh, no, top two primaries is going to put Democrats in charge, or if you're a Republican and you're worried that Republicans will lose power, they will not and they will not. What happens is the party power shift hasn't been that different in California. Democrats controlled it then. Democrats control it now. The difference is how they behave. They're not just worried about looking over their left shoulder to make sure they make only Democrats happy. They're making Democrats happy, and to the maximum extent they can, independents and Republicans happy as well. And I I do want to state the obvious, the elephant in the room, right? I'm not suggesting California is the best model for everything, right? (laughs) It happens to be California in this case, and it worked. I'm not one who points to them for leadership on a lot of things. Louisiana. I I, I will say, well, so this is what I was going to say. Louisiana, I was at, I've been six months, I've been on this book tour. It's been awesome. And one of my favorite experiences was in Louisiana. I was at the, in Baton Rouge at the Louisiana Book Festival, and I was speaking about my book. And as Lyndon Johnson, famously said, if you can't walk into every room and tell immediately who's for you and who's against you, you shouldn't be in politics. So who do you think shows up at the Louisiana Book Festival in the state capitol to hear a political author when there's hundreds of other authors that are speaking? It's the people who are partisan, right? So I start to talk about the Louisiana system and the open primaries and how I I like it. And both sides raise their hand. I know who there are. In the, they both raise their hand. They're like, we don't like this system because we can't pick our candidates now. We want to be able to pick our candidates. Why should these independents come in and tell us who our choices are? Right? Yeah. And, you know, we went back and forth. And I, and I said, you know, I'm glad we're having this discussion. But you're what I'm talking about in the book. <laughs> right? I mean, this is exactly the problem. Because when 
you are able to pick your candidates. You pick people from the fringe, and we end up with folks who can't talk to each other. They can't work together, and that's not what we need. I have a, a fairly funny anecdote. When we first started working with Stearns Weaver on this issue, Gene Stearns, the founding partner, said, well, Steve, go talk to the party leaders. I'm sure they'll love this. And I actually was convinced that because the party that talks to independents, they're growing. In the last 25 years, the number of people who are registered no party affiliation in Florida have quadrupled. They went from 7 to 28%, and that number continues to slide up. So I sat down with my friend Scott Arsenault, and many of you must know Allison Tan, who I love dearly. And we're sitting at lunch, and so I start explaining this. And Allison, true to form, is like, this is awesome. I love this. Now, for those of you who are not aware, the Democrats control exactly nothing in the state of Florida. Okay, if you're not aware, we, we, we have two-thirds majority in both chambers. The governor's a Republican, blah, blah, blah. And so Scott goes, yeah, but I don't like the system. Scott, you've got to roll the dice. Something's going to happen here, right? And he goes, we'll lose all our power. The party that has more people registered Democrat than Republican is worried about losing all their power in a state where they have exactly no power. So that's exactly, the partisans are the ones who don't like this system. And, the, and by the way, the big complaint in California is not that open primaries, and, and you asked the question about open primaries, this is a form of open primaries, is not that it's not working. Nobody's complaining about that. What the big complaint is, and there's a movement afoot to change it back to the old way because, and here's the complaint, candidates say it's too hard to run for re-election. It's too hard. We have to talk to too many voters. We want to go back to a primary system. But isn't that the problem? Spend more money because you have to reach more voters, whereas you can just sit in a partisan district and not campaign at all and get re-elected. They like that a lot better. That's exactly right. Liz? So two questions. What are the disadvantages of open primaries with top two electeds? And then is there something that, like, is there an unintended consequence that, that might exist in that option that you could consider now? And then actually, a question for Steve Vancor, which is, where can I buy some zebra socks like you're wearing? <laughs> oh, I didn't see this. There's a place in Railroad Square that has a whole bunch of socks. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about disadvantages? Look at my Where's Waldo socks. Uh, disadvantages? I, I don't know of any. No, uh, why don't you start? Why don't you start with the, the disadvantages top two? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the disadvantage is... If you consider it a disadvantage, if you are a Republican in an area that sends two Democrats to the general election or vice versa, your candidate's not in the general election, but you still have a voice. You're going to have an influence in the outcome in picking which candidate. Whereas now, if you're a Republican living in a Democratic area, you can't vote in the Democratic primary. You have no voice whatsoever because you're going to lose in the general anyway. Wouldn't you rather have a choice of, of two folks that you could actually have a voice in. And let, me, let me tell you one thing I hear a lot of people say is that well, people will play games. We'll play games. So here's a confession. Twice in the last eight years, in Florida, we have a weird little law that says if, if two Democrats appear only on the ballot, then all voters get to vote, which is a good thing, right? Now, how many lawyers are there in the room? Can you raise your hand if you're a lawyer? I just need some backup. Okay, so you know you advocate for the best interest of your client. Client hired you, and you obey the law, you obey the rules. So I was doing that. Uh, Eleanor Sobel was running for the state senate. She was a dear friend. I consider her just, I love her to death. And 
Three Democrats only registered. Eleanor was far and away the most liberal candidate in the race. In a closed if it was a closed Democratic primary, the odds of her winning went up dramatically. So what did we do? We got one of her friends to go as a write-in. If you're a write-in candidate, the law at the time, thank you, Catherine Harris, said a write-in candidate is a legitimate candidate, then only Democrats vote. I did it. I found her friend. I signed him up. Then, uh, six years later, I did the same thing in Kristen Jacobs' seat, except, you're going to love this, except right before qualifying, she calls me up and she says, oh, hey, you know the guy we got to run as a write-in? Yeah. He doesn't live in the district. I'm like, Oh, so that's a problem because the law said if you don't live in the district, you're not qualified. We took our case to Judge Reynolds. Any fans of Judge Reynolds here? He said it's unconstitutional. We win. Angela Dempsey had another legislator's case. I, I love Angie. She's always a client of ours, actually. She got it wrong and said no, and Jamie Grant got kicked off the ballot. So we played those games. What am I going with it? People play games all the time. And, and so what's the downside of a process and a system that lets every voter vote? Well, another upside is you don't have the spoiler third party in the general election. They're in the primary. So your voice is heard, and you can vote for that third or independent person if you want. But in the general election, it's just the top two winners. I'll give you another example of that might be a problem. If there's three candidates in a race, one's legitimate and the whatever the definition of that is, and the other two aren't, right? And one candidate gets 99% and the other two candidates split a percent under a pure top two, they matriculate to the general. That seems unfair and unwieldy. Uh, so I could see somebody saying, well, if you get 50% in the primary, you win. So that's one of the debates within the top two yeah. community. The key point is the type of representative you're going to get in that system is going to be more moderate, more willing to work with both sides. And you'll, you'll still get people... Yeah. From both sides, I think you still get hardcore Democrats, hardcore Republicans. But in our current system, that's pretty much all we get. Two and a half percent. That means ninety-seven and a half percent of the legislature is this. Liz, thank you. I'm going to let Jason answer this. This guy's really smart. And so, my name is Robert Weissert. I work for Florida Tax Watch, which is a nonpartisan think tank. And Congressman, thank you very much for being here with us. In this discussion, you've talked about partisan extremism money in politics, close primaries, and the partisan media and misinformation as some of these issues of what you're doing. What about voter apathy? In your earlier example of two of your constituents arguing over misinformation, you mentioned there were only 25 people in the room. What if there had been 250 instead? Do you think that more engagement equals more centerism? And if so, how do we increase engagement? Yeah, the data shows, and it's just intuitive, that the more people vote, the more moderate the electorate becomes because, as I said, you start from the fact the extremes dominate. So getting more people to vote is a key recommendation. And efforts at voter suppression that have occurred in states are obviously really bad and, and should not happen. So uh, I get into a little bit the arguments about mandatory voting like they have in Australia, for example. The problem here is it's questionable whether or not that's constitutional. It makes people really uncomfortable. And the fact is, this is not a partisan statement, this is just fact, that the people who are not voting, who are most apathetic, tend to be Democrats. So if you find a way to get more of them to the polls, the Republicans don't really like that so much. So that's a problem. 
mandating people, coercing them, using the stick rather than the carrot to vote might not be constitutional. But there is a good uh, recommendation in the book about having a national lottery where everyone who votes, that's your lottery ticket. So maybe that would encourage more people to vote. Now, I know what you're thinking because it's a good thought. It's, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. Well, why shouldn't the people who are most knowledgeable and most interested be the people who decide our elections? Why would we want to encourage people who don't know anything to show up? And there's a couple of things about that. The people who I told you have all this psychological research into the way partisans think. The people who are the most partisan, the most polarized among our citizens are the people who clearly are the most confident in their opinion, but they are often the people who know the least about the subject they're so confident about. There was a study sure? done. Yes. There was a study done. Sounds pretty certain about that. Fairly Dickinson University did a study of people's knowledge of current events based upon sorted by their news viewing. So the people who watched MSNBC and Fox were different categories, and people who watched no news at all were a different category. And the people who watched had no exposure to news at all fared better on the test than people who watched Fox and NBC. Not because the people who watched Fox and MSNBC were, were uninterested or, or disinterested, but because the facts they were being told were incorrect. So they were a lot more politically interested than the people who don't watch news, but they were just wrong on both sides. So I think I, I just really believe it's better. You want educated voters, and I have a lot of civics education. The book is loaded with these crazy, humorous examples of how ill-informed the American people are about our common civics and the way government runs. My favorite is C-SPAN did a poll of this knowledge of the Supreme Court. 1,034 people were surveyed. Less than half could name even one Supreme Court justice. None could name all nine out of over a 1,000 people. And most interestingly, 10% of Americans think that Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. <laughs> what? There was she's a, yeah, she's not. There was a study done... <laughs> There was a study done of, by the American Constitution Center in Philadelphia of the American Revolution. First question was, do you think it's important that Americans know the basic facts of our founding of the Constitution and the Revolution? 90% of Americans said yes. I don't know who the other 10% were, but 90% said yes. Judy watchers. <laughs> then they gave them the test, and afterwards they said, did you pass or fail? How do you think you did? 89% said, I passed. 83% failed. One third of Americans could not even place the American Revolution in the right century. Now, it's a little bit of a trick question because it's not the 17th century, which was, you know, but the point is people are really ill-informed and, and they're confident. There was a study out of the University of Illinois that asked people questions about welfare, the welfare system in the country. Hard questions. How, how old can you be to qualify? What's the income threshold? How many members of your family can qualify? Can you work and get welfare? Is there a lifetime cap? Well, you know, hard questions. So same deal. They asked them in advance, do you think you can pass? And they took the test and they said, how do you think you did? 3% got even half the questions right. So basically everybody failed. But what was most interesting was in a, in a directly 
a direct relationship, the people who were the most confident that they were right are the people who did the worst on the test. And they're also... We're advocating to let more people vote, not... <laughs> well, but those are the people that are voting. That's what I was going to say. Those people who did the worst on the test and are so confident in their opinion, they're deciding who our leaders are. So, yes, I'm for letting everybody but else I, I want to answer Robert's question a different way because you, you get to something important. I, I think the issue for me of all voters vote on this, this top two primary, for me, it's not about voter apathy. Okay, that's an important issue, but so is water quality. To me, th this issue is something different. This won't solve that issue. But I will say this. If you went into an ice cream store and the only flavors were vanilla or French vanilla or French vanilla bean, you went to another store and it was three variations of strawberry, you're less likely to go to an ice cream store. Now, if you go to Lofty Pursuits, anybody here a big Lofty Pursuits fan? They make all this kind of incredible variety of ice creams. It makes you want to go. But what we have now in the Democratic primary, and I've done over 200 Democratic primary races. Trust me, there's that much difference between them. And I've worked on dozens and dozens and dozens of Republican primaries, and there's that much difference between them. I don't blame voters for missing primaries. And where are the turnout the highest? In gubernatorial general elections, state of Florida, go to the Supervisor of Elections website, it's between 48 and 50 percent every cycle. Presidential, it's about 75 percent. What do you got there? You have options in a presidential election. You have options in a gubernatorial election. You really don't have options in a primary, A, and B, Nonpartisan voters are told over and over again, there's nothing for you on the ballot. Yet, ironically, all you lawyers, we put judge races there. What does that tell you? So judges are only being chosen by, yes, nonpartisans are legally allowed to go vote, and you get this little ballot. Everybody else gets a nice big ballot. You get, you know, Judge Sheffield retainer or not. Liz, do we have more questions? Is there some way we can just do away with primaries and we just dump them? Well, at some level, that's what the top two primary does, because you have to have a system of winnowing. Otherwise, if you just everybody went to one and it was just a big crowd, then somebody could win 12% of the vote and win. So I think the idea is we want a majority of those voting, as opposed to a majority of voters, a majority of those voting at least choosing their representative. Louisiana has done that. Louisiana does not have primaries. What Louisiana has is the general election is the first vote. If nobody gets 50% of the vote, there's a runoff between the top two. So de facto, it's a top two primary. But if somebody wins with more than 50% of the vote in the general, it's over. Hi, I'm Evelyn Shelley. I'm retired from the state of Florida. I get a little concerned when I keep hearing that certain legislators are sort of committed to different industry viewpoints, different business viewpoints, because of the way they're campaigns have been financed. If you have a lot more candidates in the open primary kind of, kind of situation, wouldn't that just ensure that those who are particularly well-financed by industry and business are going to be elected? Well, let, let me give you, the, the answer is no matter what type of election process you have, that's always going to be the case. The people who are the incumbents or who are cozying up to the industries are going to get money from those industries, and that's they're going to dominate. The incumbent advantage is based upon that principle, right? You can attract outside funding. But let me, let me talk about campaign finance for a moment. This is an interesting study that was done that will depress you but not surprise you. 
they looked at members of Congress, U.S. House and senators, and their voting record, and they polled their constituents, the people that they represent in their state or district, and their views on issues, and they looked at their sources of funding in their campaigns. And it turns out, maybe unsurprisingly, that their voting record aligned much more closely to the people who gave them money than the people that they're representing. That's disturbing. We spent over $6.5 billion in 2016 on federal elections, 2 on the presidential race, 4 on the lower-level races, Congress and Senate. Of that money, 39% of all the money we spent in the entire country on federal elections, in the biggest, most expensive election we've had in our history, 39% of that money came from people in the 0.01% income bracket. Not 1%, not 0.1%, 0.01, which is basically a couple hundred people spent 39% of the money that we used to influence federal elections. That is a huge problem, and it distorts the process. I, I agree with you that money permeates the system. You had said early on when you when you vote, you, you have three things. Your conscience, what, you, what you've studied, what you've learned, your constituents, and then to some degree your donor, people who supported you. What I think this system does is it upweights constituents. Because right now, if you're, if you're protected in a little bubble of partisanship, what, what happens there is the definition of partisanship, both on the right and on the left, is defined by a few key issues. The vast majority of issues that lawmakers are confronted with never make the light of day never fall into a partisan bubble. You know, whether you're going to fund uh, repairs to the C-51 canal going into Lake Worth, or you're going to fund a the straightening of the Kissimmee River, voters aren't going to say one way or the other, but there are financial interests. The cattle industry on one, maybe the sugar industry on the other, may have different viewpoints about that. So they're hiring their team of lobbyists, and they're making donations to people, irrespective of that point of, of partisanship. But when you go back home, and you're a Democrat, it's, you know, how did you vote on these four or five or six Democratic litmus issues by opening up the primaries in this regard? And I don't want this to be all about open primaries, but you then have to answer to a broader array of people and say, why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? So I just think it changes the equation a little bit. But there's a whole slew of things. Do you want to talk more about some of the ideas on campaign finance reform? You should go there a little bit. Well, I, I talk about things. Campaign finance reform is not politically realistic, but it's so influential in the way you think and the way you act as a member of Congress. You have to talk about it. If the American people had any idea, like really understood how much time it takes out of your day to think about and work on campaign finance, it's literally hours and hours of every single day. And when you walk into a room, you immediately size up the room not based upon any other factor except for who can give me money. And the people who can give you money are the ones you find your way over to. And it's just, it distorts the process, and it's too much time. But it is a misconception that that's all members of Congress, because those folks that are in those safe seats that I told you about, they don't have to worry about that. So they're out doing what they do. It's the centrists, the people who are vulnerable and have tough races that have to spend all of their time thinking about where's the next dollar going to come from. David Jolly, who came through town recently, talked about it's worse since you left that the average member of Congress spends, according to David, eight hours a day 
raising money. Eight hours a day raising money. What that means also, it's not just the corruption of the money, right? It's the absence of time, where the absence of time for you to walk across the aisle to talk to a colleague about how to get something done, how to solve a complex problem, how to work together on solving an issue. You're sitting in a silo, dialing for dollars, dialing for dollars, dialing for dollars. I think that's more insidious than term limits. The fact that if they were up there, they were able to work together and, and understood the collegiality. They're instead spending their time calling professional lobbyists for money. Yeah, there's a, I have, not related to money. There, I have an interesting recommendation in the book of when we elect the Speaker of the House, I think you should need 60% of the vote of the House rather than 50%. And you might say, okay, so what does that matter? That means you're going to have to get people from the other party to support your nominee for Speaker to have any chance to win. Look at a couple of our most polarizing recent speakers. When Newt Gingrich became Speaker in 1995, if that were the process, he would have needed 31 Democrats to support him. Never would have happened. When Nancy Pelosi became Speaker in 2007, she would have needed 28 Republicans Never to support her. Never would have happened. So you're forced, when you build your coalition to get that 60%, you build it from the center out rather than from the extremes in. And you would start with somebody who knows how to work with both sides and accomplish something rather than just be partisan. Liz? Now that you've been on the inside, what is the preconception that most of us have that we misunderstand, that we're wrong about, about serving in Congress? The, I would have said the money part. And even though everyone understands money dominates politics, I don't think people really understand the time that it takes away. You know, I, I could say something altruistic, like most members of Congress, I think a misconception is um, people will say, why doesn't anybody know anything about business that's there? Why are, you know, most members of Congress forget about the partisanship. And the reason they're partisan is because they're accountable. They're more partisan than they would like to be. But most members are high achievers. They're, they're people who are very successful in whatever industry they came from. They could be doing other things. And most of them are there for the right reasons. They're just forced to be more partisan than they would like to be and more angry and, and confrontational than they would like to be because of what I said, that the extremes dominate the electoral process. And I, as a pollster, I'll tell you one misperception, not as an insider, is you've heard that old expression, people hate Congress, but they like their own congressperson. That's not true. It's not true anymore. People don't like Congress and they don't like their own congressperson. But guess what? They don't have the opportunity to vote that person out because they're shuttered into closed primaries. And a majority of districts, almost every single district, the majority of voters belong to the party or non-party opposite of the member of Congress. I, I've been on this book tour, so I spoke in Gainesville at the Bob Graham Center, which is awesome. And they do amazing work. and We had a great time. But a guy approached me afterwards and he represented a group called Fire Your Congressman, and he came up, he said, I would like to talk to you, I'd like for you to run against, I live in Jacksonville now, and the congressman there is a guy named John Rutherford, who I'm friends with, he said, I want you to run against John Rutherford because I, I'm trying to field a candidate in every race in the country to get rid of every congressman. And I said, I said, you know, why do you want to do that? And, you know, he's just frustrated. And he's a smart guy, he's a professor at the university, his wife's a professor, he's not a crank, he's, he's a good guy. And I said, well, I, let me ask you a question, though. Let's say I win. What are you going to do next time? He said, well, we're going to take you out. 
And I said, that doesn't sound so appealing to me. I don't, I don't like that. But that's the problem. People are so well, frustrated. It's why term limits passes everywhere. Yeah. I remember Arkansas used to have this horrible term limits. It was six years. And, and, and for those of you familiar with the Arkansas legislature, they only meet every other year. And it's a lifetime ban. Okay, so you're, you're literally like in high school thinking, I think I want to be speaker. So we, we worked with a group to, to create, recreate term limits the first time. They ended up succeeding the second time. We had this thing called support. We wanted to have, we knew we had to get a yes vote. We passed a thing called term limits that work. And it went down two to one because people did not want longer terms because they were like this guy. It's like, I'm just so mad. I want all of you gone. Even if it means when you get there, I want you gone again. So we got a question. So you did get elected twice. How? Three times. <laughs> That's right. But who's yeah, three times. Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I got elected the first time I was running against an incumbent who at the time was 42 years old. She was perceived to be invulnerable. She had won her last two races with 28% of the vote by 28% of the vote. And she had just been the platform committee chair at the Republican convention. People were talking about her as a future president. And uh, I had the audacity to run against her. And I, I, I won. You know, it's a different story of how I won. But I, I, I won. She hadn't been challenged before. And it was a good race. But I had a lot of support. And then I started to vote the way that I told you, uh, you know, not just Democratic Party line. And people did become frustrated with that. But if you do good constituent service and you work hard and you're voting the way your majority of your constituents want you to, I could have held that seat for as long as I wanted to. It was gerrymandering that, that ended my career. But the issue is it reminds me of a story when you are first elected, you get a notice in the mail the day after the election that says, congratulations, orientation starts on Sunday. And you show up in D.C. and it's all of the freshmen, all of the newly elected members are there. And it's kind of a cool, really heady stuff. And all of your colleagues, the people who've been there that you know and you've seen on TV, and you're all there together. And I tell this anecdote in the book because it's, it's interesting and it's instructive. And there's a guy from Georgia named John Barrow. Some of you may know John Barrow. And he's right out of central casting for the Southern lawyer. He's got a Harvard Law degree but he's got the white shock of hair and the really thick accent and he, he plays dumb, right? But he's not. He's, but he's got this act that he plays. And he came up to me and he introduced himself and put his arm around me and he said, son, let me tell you something. And he looked around the room and kind of focused on a few people. He said, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who got elected to this house by accident. And I'm thinking, why is he telling this? Why did he pick me out to deliver this message? And he said, there's a lot of flukes. A lot of people got here by fluke. But there ain't nobody, nobody ever got reelected by accident. And that's kind of powerful. And what that means is when you get in, you have a voting record and you have a record of constituent service. And if you're not doing that well, you are not going to get reelected. But if you do do it well and you're connecting with people, now when a wave occurs, like it's going to happen this November, it happened in 2010, it happened in 2006, good people get carried out because it's just too powerful to overcome. So there are extenuating circumstances. But by and large, at that, at that house level, if you're, if you're connecting with your people, your constituents, you're going to be okay. Next question. 
I'm retired. What can I do tomorrow to fix this problem? We live here in Florida, I assume, right? Read the book. Read the book, right? <laughs> That's good. And the book is for sale over there for anybody. But more importantly, I would say work with Steve on the open primaries. There may, I'm sure there's differences of opinion on that in this room. I think it's important. But this cause that we're talking about, this is why I did want to say this to all of you. Thank you so much for the fact that you are here and you're paying attention. You're members of this amazing group, which is getting national recognition. You probably, maybe you don't, take it for granted because it's here in your backyard. It's in Tallahassee. It's awesome what Village Square does, what's happening here. So thank you so much for your work. And I'm co-chairing a national commission. We just unveiled it with a former congressman named Tom Davis from Virginia, Republican. And it's a commission on civility and congressional reform, reform of the Congress. And Mel Martinez is on it. We have some really good representation with former ambassadors. And what we're trying to do is bring all of these groups together that have worked on it, the Bipartisan Policy Center and No Labels and all of these groups, and they all have good ideas and they issue their recommendations and nobody really pays any attention, but come up with the good ideas that are politically viable, they're possible, they can gain consensus and really try to make a difference. So I would say, you know, that's the kind of effort, if you're interested, that, that we could definitely get you involved in because it's, it's greater than just the primary system. It's civility and bringing, you know, what you see on social media, the story that Glenn told about the Pulse nightclub was really the inspiration to turn just random writings that I had into the book that it became was because when Pulse happened, it's an issue that uh, this horrific tragedy used to be something that would bring the country together in a shared sense of grief. But in this instance, it touched on every hot-button issue that exists. It was a gay nightclub. It was a New York City-born Muslim shooter, an easily acquired arsenal of weapons. It was, it was everything that's a hot-button issue. But what you saw, like I talked about those two sides of America where most people are normal folks that want to get along and have a functioning government, those folks waited in line for hours to give blood. They donated money. They held vigils around the country. The first responders, the brave response that they had. That's the best side of America. But you also saw the worst of America, mostly through social media, of these people who immediately took a tragedy and tried to figure out a way to gain political advantage. They pointed fingers. They casted blame. They tried to figure out who was responsible. That's that's the country that we have right now. So to the degree we can bring more civility and move away from that immediate response of who's to blame? How can I gain political advantage from this horrific? And we've seen it subsequent to that, too. So that's that was really the inspiration to write the book. You touched on something. One of the easy answers, like, you know, oh, term limits as well as the problem is social media. All these kids on social media. I want you to just think about something. When we study voter registration trends, people who are most likely to reject hyperpartisanship are younger people. Who's most likely to be on their cell phone and so engage in social media? Younger people. So there's no real correlation. I don't think anybody has the market cornered on hyperpartisanship, uh, and nor is there one single part of this complex problem. Because I hear people go, oh, it's social media. We break down to our silos. Yeah, we do. That's all right. But if that were true completely, then why aren't millennials all registering within parties? Because they would, in theory, be more hyper-partisan. And they're actually 
less partisan. I'll give you a couple interesting social media stories. And I am on Twitter, by the way, and I talk politics. So if you're interested, let's chat through Twitter. Study was done on the concept of blind sharing, which is when somebody circulates an article that they have not read presumably to show off their newfound intelligence, right? So every day, millions of articles are shared. I'm sure all of you get it on your Facebook and, and Twitter. So what happens, right? So they, they did a study of how many people are sharing articles they hadn't read. So they looked at 10,000 Twitter users and Facebook users, and 59% of the articles that were forwarded were not clicked before they were sent. They were not read. Big problem. There was a study done on Twitter users and the language that they use. And you can, it's uncanny. You can immediately tell what party affiliation somebody is just based on the way they talk. And I don't mean you say Benghazi or Obamacare, you're more likely to be a Republican. I'm talking about the phrases that you use, the emotion that you express, the other things that you tweet about besides politics. We really are two different planets. Well, that's how Mark Zuckerberg sells data to me yeah. so I could target people in my Democratic or Republican primaries. Exactly. And he does. Two questions. Millennials are cynical and apolitical. You think that's changing? And also, more women are getting involved than ever before. What do you think will change in Congress with women coming in? Don't let me forget the second part because I have strong answers on both of these, right? Okay, so on women, this is really interesting. The common conventional wisdom is if you elect more women, you're going to have less partisanship, right? Is that what most people would think? There was a study done, a, a political science professor, Jennifer Lawless from American University and Sean Therio from Texas combined on an exhaustive study of 40 years, 40 years of congressional votes, Thousands of votes of congressional delegation travel, overseas travel when people come together and share that time together, amendments that were offered in cross-partisan sponsorships of bills, co-sponsorships of bills, exhaustive study. And she wanted to figure out if friendships had an impact on partisans. And what she found is it has no impact because part of Newt Gingrich's legacy is they blame him for the dysfunction of Washington because he went to the three-day work week and encouraged his members to move away from Washington and get back into their districts. So people said, well, when we used to live in Washington, Republicans and Democrats, their families knew each other, their kids played together, they became friends, and so therefore there was less partisanship. This study showed that simply was not true. And they looked at women and men, and it found out that Democratic women are actually more partisan than anybody else. Republican men, Republican women, Democrat men. The most partisan are Democratic women. So it, it's not a gender thing. Well, that's just because Debbie Wasserman Schultz sets the curve. Well, you take her out. That would be an example. Debbie's a friend. I know. But, um, so on, uh, on um, millennials, Millennial, I don't know if they're cynical, but I do want to say this about millennials. Millennials are civic-minded, interested in making a difference in a way that previous generations have, have been less so. I won't say weren't, but they're really, it's powerful the way millennials are interested in, in causes. And, and the problem that we have is their interest in better community, being better in their communities and serving 
is it doesn't translate to politics. They don't view politics as the way to do it. They're very disgusted by the political process, and who wouldn't be? But they're not running for office in big numbers. They're not participating in the political process because they're disgusted by it, and they think they can make a difference in other ways. And in some cases, you can but boy, I'd really like to have that passion and that energy translate into greater political participation. Right. Can I ask a question? How many of you all are disgusted with what you see in Washington? Can you just raise your hand? I see a couple here or there, a couple over there. Yeah. So, so I, I want to be less nice than you were in my answer. I reject the premise of the question. I don't think I've focus grouped, researched millennials. I don't find them any more cynical than I am or as evidenced by the 100% participation in the raising of these hands than you are. You're exactly right. They participate differently, and frankly, they should, because we've left them with a very different world than we've inherited. We used to have a very robust workers' comp system. Those of you who do workers' comp for a living will know what I'm talking about. We used to have the finest ports in the world. We don't. We used to have the finest roads in the world. We don't. We used to have the strongest economy in the world. We don't. They, they're the ones that come of age. I heard a young millennial on an interview the other day. They said something about, what are you millennials going to do? And she said, well, you're giving us a, a $17 trillion deficit. Give us a minute. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And uh, as I watched them adapt to this new world where with a college degree, and I have four millennials working in my office, all of them have master's degrees. All of them make a pretty good living, but the competition out there is awful. People with master's degree, bachelor's degrees, making eight, nine dollars an hour after two or three years in the workforce, and the complete inability. I made that much money working at Red Lobster in 1983 when MGT of America tried to hire me. I was like, "Well, I'm making eight and a half bucks an hour," and I was able to afford a house, a car. I mean, a room and a house and a car. And my son has been tropical smoothie for three years. He's the assistant manager going to FSU, and he's making that much money. And so that's the world they've inherited. So I don't blame them for being cynical, but I don't see any study that shows they're more or less cynical than everybody else. I'm sorry to be, but that's a little bit of a sore point. I don't want to be that old guy who looks at the young folks and says, ah, they're not like we were. Go on. <laughs> Can I amend one of my answers? Because I thought about something with that previous question about what would be most surprising to people if they knew about Congress. And I think it is that people are actually friends. It's a misconception that Republicans and Democrats hate each other and there's a personal animosity. There's really not. You are friends. And I talked about this study that had been done. And as one example, I personal example, I think, which is funny, I give in the book, is I was always, because of my district, one of the most targeted members for the Republicans to go after every year. I was always, I was right, you know, in their sights. And the guy who was the chair of the Republican campaign committee, whose job it was to defeat me, was one of my good friends. And he did it for two cycles in a row, and, and I won. And we used to sit in the house gym. And I talk about the house gym as a place where members of both parties come and you hang out and you really are friends. And you play basketball and work out and just hang out and chat. So I used to chat with this guy. His name is Pete Sessions from Texas. And it reminded me of the old Looney Tunes characters, the wolf and sheepdog, if you remember them, where they would walk together and, you know, pat each other on the back, and then they would clock in, and they would beat the hell out of each other for eight hours, and then the whistle would go off, and then they would put their arms around each other and say, okay, Ralph, I'll see you tomorrow. That's kind of what this was like. So we were both football fans. He's a Cowboys fan. I was a Steelers fan. And uh, we would chat about the weekend activities. And then... We would kind of look at each other in the morning and say, 
okay, now we're going to go. And I knew that look for him meant I got to go find a way to beat you. But we were still friends. It was just part of the game. So I think that is a misconception that there's real animosity. Are we done? So, yeah, I want to say a quick word and, and cue up Sally for a minute because Sally Bradshaw, Midtown Reader, when Sally started... Who is selling Dead Center, which Jason will sign if he gets across the room. So really one of the things that Sally was after is what you're talking about when she started and really what the Village Square is about, what your Jefferson Dinner was about, what our Jefferson Dinner project was about. And we're, we're actually hosting a Jefferson Dinner with Monticello uh, next Friday night with leaders coming in from all over the country to talk about the crisis in Charlottesville. So in every one of those incidences... We're building community. Uh, Sally hosted a Jefferson dinner at Midtown Reader. I just wanted you to say a word about just Midtown Reader building community, the fact that, you know, who we are to each other, we're the ones who decide that, right? I'm really grateful to Liz and the Village Square for letting Midtown Reader be a part of tonight. We are delighted and proud to sell Dead Center in our store. So if you have to rush out tonight, we'll have hopefully signed copies from Congressman Altmaier there, but you can grab one here. Uh, It's a terrific read, by the way. It does not get bogged down like a lot of political books, and I have read way too many political books in my lifetime, and there are actually solutions in it, which is unusual for a member of Congress to include in a book. (laughs) So I very highly recommend it to you, but we did do a Jefferson dinner with Village Square as partners, and it was terrific. Sometime in October, we pulled a group together with Liz's help, and there were young and old and in-between college students and retirees and people in the community. And the one rule, as Steve said, is there has to be one conversation. So I think we had 12 people. It was remarkable. I mean, so often we talk about this, but we don't do anything about it. And when you are across the table from someone who is different from you, you will quickly find that you have a lot more in common with them than you thought. The Village Square has made that their goal and is actually acting to bring civil dialogue and discourse to Tallahassee. And we're just so glad to be affiliated with you guys and partners on this and grateful for all that each of you do every day on that front and that, Liz, you do in particular. Thank you. And Midtown Raider, too, again, your vision is to bring people into the community to engage in, in, you know, deep conversation about all sorts of different things and to be welcoming, to be that community place again. We're the ones who decide that, right? We decide how we live here. If, if, if you were even thinking about it, please buy the book. Jason came here just out of a friendship request. You get a high-quality professional speaker like this, somebody who's traveling around the country doing it. Please take a moment and buy the book. It, it is a really good read. It's it's riveting. It's, I like the interludes with the stories, the the anecdotes, and then get into the solutions. So take a minute and buy the book, please. Yeah, Thank you, everybody, for being here. Hi again. It's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this throwback program. Let's hear it for former Congressman Jason Altmaier and Steve Vancor. I'm so thankful for this discussion because I think it really helps when trying to understand the source of the dysfunction to hear from people like this who know what's going on behind the scenes. Now can you see why I said this was perfect for our current season, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America? I love how solution-oriented all these programs are. And one major theme is that we, as citizens, can get involved and be part of the solution. 
before I started diving into all these village square programs, it was so common for me to feel demoralized because the problem seemed too big and too complex for me to be able to have any impact. And so I'd often just want to withdraw. But now, thanks to these programs, what I'm learning is that one of the best things we can do is be individuals who help heal divides and build bridges by connecting with people who think differently than us. If we write people off who have different views, what good does that do? And how does that move us forward as a country? I know it can be hard, though, when we're so used to avoiding these topics with people we disagree with. So if you're not sure where to start, how about a Jefferson dinner? You heard those mentioned several times in this episode. So here's the deal. These dinners are modeled after Thomas Jefferson's famous dinners, where he would bring together feuding partisans for good food and a good conversation. Back when America was brand spanking new, Jefferson was credited with having saved the Republic by hosting these dinners and conversations. One table, one group conversation. You can find out all about it and sign up to host or attend at jeffersondinner.org. Speaking of Jefferson, I am so excited to let you guys know one of my absolute favorite Village Square programs is coming up soon on Village Squarecast. It's called A Conversation with President Thomas Jefferson, and it's about how present-day America is fulfilling or failing to fulfill America's founding ideals as seen by President Thomas Jefferson, who is portrayed by humanity's scholar, author, and creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. Clay is in character as Thomas Jefferson for about two-thirds of the program, speaking about present-day issues. And y'all, listen, it is so fascinating and entertaining and thought-provoking all at the same time. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It's also, by the way, another program facilitated by Steve Vancourt, so that's fun. It's coming out as one of our throwback episodes over the summer, so make sure you're subscribed to Village Squarecast so you can see that when it comes out. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. And to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square, sign up for our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We'd be so grateful if you drop us a review in Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you listening to Forget Washington, Save America. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.